Okay, we will continue now with the discussion of the Maha Malankya Sutta. That's the, the longer discourse to Malankya Putta. And in this Sutta, the theme with which the Buddha is dealing is the five lower fetters. That is, the five fetters or bonds of the mind which bind living beings to the lower sphere of existence, the sensuous realm of existence. And these five fetters are, as we see from this diagram, personality view or view of a truly existing self, substantial self, in or behind the five aggregates, doubt about the Buddha and the truth of the Dhamma, adherence to rules and observances. Those are the three lowest fetters that are eradicated with the attainment of the first stage of enlightenment, stream entry. Then there is the four sensual desire, desire for any of the five sense objects, and ill will or hatred. These two fetters are weakened at the second stage of enlightenment, the stage of the once returner, and they are completely eradicated at the stage of the non-returner. And in his first important statement about these five fetters, the Buddha emphasizes that the term fetter, sanyojana, includes not only the manifestation of the defilement in its active form, in the mind, but also the anusya, the underlying tendency, dormant tendency of the defilement, which may be lying latent, even when the mind is in a very calm and peaceful state. And as we saw, the Buddha pointed out very, very significantly that even with a little baby lying on its back who doesn't have any idea about philosophy or sense pleasures or different teachings or doesn't even have the idea of another person, still these five fetters exist because they are present in the form of these dormant or underlying tendencies. And so when that little baby grows up, as he matures, these five defilements will begin to manifest and appear in active form. Okay, so now after giving an explanation of the basic rundown on the five fetters. Now we come to paragraph seven. 
the Buddha says that there is a path, Ananda, a way to the abandoning of the five lower fetters. And if anyone or that anyone without coming to that path, to that way, shall know or see or abandon the five lower fetters, this is impossible. And here actually the expression in Pali that's translated here without coming, agamma, actually means without depending on, without relying upon. So in other words, this particular path or way that the Buddha is going to teach is the indispensable, inomissible, is that a word? (laughs) Okay, indispensable means or way for eradicating the five lower fetters. In order to abandon the five lower fetters, and to arrive at the stage, the minimum stage of anagami or non-returner, it is necessary to follow this particular path of practice. And the Buddha illustrates this by an example. He says, suppose there is a great tree standing, possessed of heartwood. It is impossible that anyone shall cut the heartwood without cutting through its bark and sapwood. And the commentary to the sutta gives an an interesting way of showing exactly how this illustration is appropriate. Since the path to the cutting off of the five lower fetters is like the heartwood, and to get to the heartwood, one first has to cut through the bark, then through the sapwood or the softwood. And so the commentary says, Now, in order to reach the path of non-returner, one first has to develop samadhi or samatha, serenity or calm meditation, up to the level, according to the sutta, of at least the first jhana. Then, on the basis of that samadhi, one has to develop vipassana, insight. And when that insight reaches its peak and becomes fully matured, there emerges the path of the non-returner, cutting off the five lower fetters. And so the commentary says that the bark is like the samatha practice. The sapwood is like the vipassana practice. And the supramundane path, 
of non-returner or arahant, that is the heart root. And so if one doesn't develop samatha and vipassana in the way that the Buddha will teach, then one cannot come to that lokutara or supramundane path that eradicates the fetters. Okay, then in the next paragraph the Buddha just illustrates the converse of that. That by, if anyone, by depending on that path, shall know and see and abandon the five lower fetters, that is possible. Okay, now in the next paragraph, the Buddha also in introduces or emphasizes another important or essential qualification <coughs> for reaching that stage of the eradication of the lower fetters. And this is concerned not so much with the way of practice, but with the inner attitude or disposition <coughs> that has to be present when one undertakes the practice. And again, the Buddha introduces this point by means of a simile. He says, suppose the river Ganges were full of water right up to the brim so that crows could drink from it. <coughs> and then a feeble man came along thinking that by swimming across the stream with my arms I shall get safely across to the far shore of this river Ganges. Such a man, because he's weak, feeble, he would not be able to get across. <coughs> and so, the Buddha says, when the Dhamma is being taught to somebody for the cessation of personality, that is the cessation of the five aggregates, which is Nibbana, the transcendent state. <coughs> if his mind does not enter into that state, that is, if his mind is not disposed to that state, if he is not inclined to that state, and if he does not acquire confidence in it, he doesn't acquire trust in that state as being the true deliverance from suffering. <coughs> if he is not able to steady or focus his mind on that state by making it his supreme ideal, his guiding ideal, 
and if he is not able to arrive at decision or determination to achieve that state then he is to be regarded as like the feeble man that is he is not capable of reaching that state and so it might be the case that somebody takes up the practice of samatha meditation and vipassana meditation but there might be some deep-rooted clinging to the five aggregates and some very firm attachment to the five aggregates or else some wrong view about the five aggregates or Nibbana maybe thinking <laughs> that Nibbana is some kind of state of consciousness some kind of just some exalted spiritual state and so there's an adhering to that to that idea and a clinging to the five aggregates and so even though somebody might be practicing the meditation very diligently <clears throat> but because the inner mind or the attitude the inner attitude of the mind is not disposed towards the real Nibbana element towards the cessation of the five aggregates then that person is not capable of attaining Nibbana <coughs> okay then the next paragraph simply gives the converse of that that if a man came along, a strong man, if he came along and made the decision that he will cut across the river Ganges by swimming across, then he would be able to get safely across. And so when the Dhamma is being taught to somebody for the cessation of personality, for Sakaya Niroda, the end of the five aggregates. If his mind is really strongly disposed to that complete relinquishing of all becoming, of all the formations, of all these acquisitions of form, feeling, and so on, if he really is fully intent on reaching the deathless then because of that confidence, that focus of the mind, that determination and commitment to the true goal, then he is like the strong man who's able to swim across the river with that strength of his decision, determination and commitment he's able to swim across the stream of becoming and reach the far shore the end of suffering <coughs> okay and now in the next paragraph the Buddha sets out to teach this actual path 
to the abandoning of the five lower fetters. And this will be the path which abandons the, at least the five fetters. But if one follows this path with complete diligence, it could even lead to the cutting off of all ten fetters. <clears throat> and now the Buddha begins with what looks like the usual formula for the first jhana except there's a little difference <clears throat> here with seclusion from objects of attachment with the abandoning of unwholesome states with the complete tranquilization of bodily inertia quite secluded from sense pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states, a bhikkhu enters, enters upon and abides in the first jhana, which is accompanied by applied and sustained thought, with happiness and pleasure born of seclusion. This is the usual formula for the first jhana, except that it begins with this phrase, with these three phrases, the sec with seclusion from objects of attachment. The word here is upadi. And according to the commentary, in this case, it means just the objects of sensual enjoyment. Okay, and so this bhikkhu or any meditator enters the first jhana and now okay that is the portion of samadhi or samadhi and now the next paragraph shows how he practices vipassana or insight on the basis of these on this on the basis of this attainment of jhana and though the commentary the sutta doesn't mention this but we can understand that to develop this insight he first have, has to emerge from the jhana to come back into ordinary consciousness but with the mind still very calm, concentrated, clear, and focused through that experience of immersion in the jhana. And when he emerges back into ordinary consciousness, then he reflects back upon that experience in the jhana. And he examines that experience in terms of the five aggregates. Instead of grasping this jhanic experience as some kind of totality or organic whole, he investigates it, analyzes it, and dissects it into the different components of that experience. 
And so he sees within that jhana, just as in our ordinary experience, the presence of five aggregates. <coughs> Material form, feeling, perception, the mental formations, and consciousness. <coughs> the material form, in the case of the jhana, will be the particular form object on which the mind has been focused. It will be the kasina object or some kind of nimitta which has, <coughs> which has appeared. Then there will be present a pleasant feeling, a blissful feeling, that is vedana or feeling. There will be the noticing of that object, the discerning of the object, that is perception. There will be present a variety of mental factors, the intention or volition of keeping the mind on the object. There will be the piti or joy of that experience. There will be the attention to the object, the, the, the applied thought and sustained thought. This whole constellation of mental factors, this is the formations aggregate. <clears throat> and then there is the awareness of the object, the knowing of the object which is the consciousness, <coughs> the consciousness of the object. Okay, so the, <coughs> the preparatory stage for the <coughs> development of insight is to analyze or distinguish the field of experience within the jhana into the five aggregates. <coughs> five aggregates are used like five, say five cuppy holes into which one can <coughs> place the different aspects of that experience. <coughs> then once that experience has been dissected into the five aggregates, then one contemplates everything within the five aggregates in these eleven ways. These are the eleven aspects in which insight is being cultivated. So the Buddha says, whatever exists there of form, feeling, perception, formations, and consciousness, he sees those states as impermanent, that is, arising and passing away, as <coughs> suffering or dukkha, as a disease. This is all very powerful. <laughs> because this is not, the Buddha isn't speaking here about 
getting stream entry or once return. <laughs> this is really going straight for the final goal. <laughs> and so to get that final goal, one isn't thinking about seven more existences <laughs> in heavenly planes or anything like that, but getting rid of the five aggregates altogether. <coughs> and so one goes for contemplating them all, even this blissful state of jhana is to be seen as suffering a disease, a tumor or a boil, ganda. I think in singular you have the word getia, it's the word ganda. <coughs> as a barb or a dart as a calamity, catastrophe, as an affliction, as alien or other, other than what one is. Like if a man from Mars were to arrive here, we would look at him as an alien. And so in the same way, one has to look at one's own body, feeling, perception, even one's own consciousness. As disintegrating, moment by moment, just breaking up, dissolving, passing away. As void, shunyata, empty, without any kind of substance, just like foam or bubbles or a mirage or an, a magical illusion and as anatta, as non-self. <coughs> okay, now maybe somebody is asking, always in the suttas the Buddha speaks about the three characteristics, anicca, dukkha, anatta. Now, in this sutta, is he introducing 11 characteristics? Or do we still have three characteristics? How do we classify, let's go through this list one by one and see how they fit into the three characteristics. Impermanent, what is that? Or in English? What is that? Impermanent. Okay, impermanent. <laughs> if, if anybody were, to, I was thinking, if anybody were to say anything else but impermanent, I was going to say. <laughs> okay, suffering is under what? Dukkha. Okay. Disease. Dukkha. Tumor. Dukkha. Barb. Calamity. Affliction, alien, anatta, right? Disintegrating, impermanent, right? Void, non-self, and non-self. Okay, so there's really three characteristics. But the Buddha just shows, he uses these different aspects of the three characteristics in order to, I think, to really sort of make a very deep, powerful impression on the mind. 
so that the mind will be disposed to that relinquishing of the five aggregates. Maybe if he just says, anicca, dukkha, anatta, people think, yeah, it's impermanent, but <laughs> we'll play around with it till next life or till Maitreya Buddha comes around <laughs> or 20 Buddhas after him. And of course, dukkha, it's suffering, but you get a sore throat, you lie in bed a few days, then you <laughs> you're back in shape again, so it doesn't really matter for it much. <laughs> but when you see that it's disintegrating, that it's a disease, tumor, a dart, then it's very, very powerful and impactful. <coughs> Okay, and now as the meditator is contemplating the five aggregates from these eleven different aspects, he's penetrating more and more deeply into their true nature. As the contemplation progresses, he's stripping away the different delusions of permanence or substantiality, of pleasurableness, of selfhood or solidity. And as the insight penetrates, then he becomes more and more disenchanted with the five aggregates. This is what they call nibbida, an experience of disillusionment or even revulsion or turning away from the five aggregates. And now for the meditator, the practitioner who's very mature, then when he turns his mind away from those states, then he directs the mind towards the deathless element, towards Nibbana, contemplating that this is the peaceful, this is the sublime, the stilling of all sankharas, of all condition formations, the relinquishing of all attachments, the destruction of craving, the fading away of lust, cessation, nibbana. And at first, in the stage of insight, the meditator is just reflecting on nibbana in this way, or comparing this disintegrating process of the five aggregates to nibbana as the peaceful, and sublime state. When insight reaches its fullest maturity, then an actual turning about takes place at the base of the mind, so that the mind actually turns away from the five aggregates as its object, and it fixes, focuses upon the deathless element, Nibbana. 
just momentarily the mind touches Nibbana and experiences Nibbana. And standing upon that, the Buddha says, he attains the destruction of the taints, the asapas. That is, he achieves full arhatship. That is, for one whose faculties are completely ripened. But if he does not attain the destruction of the taints, if he's not fully mature enough to reach complete deliverance through that experience, then because of that desire for the Dhamma, that delight in the Dhamma, then with the destruction of the five lower fetters, he becomes an anagami, a non-returner. That is, he is one who will, he cuts off the five lower fetters and he's destined to take rebirth spontaneously in one of what are called the pure abodes. And there he will achieve final Nibbana, final deliverance, without ever returning from that world back to the sensuous world. So this is the path, the way to the abandoning of the five lower fetters. <coughs> And I find this passage quite interesting because a question sometimes comes up whether it's necessary in order to reach the final stage of our hardship, whether it's necessary to go through each of the lower paths and fruits first. And I think according to the method of the commentaries, the explanation of the commentaries, one has to go through them each, one by one, even if it sometimes will happen in very rapid succession. But I think if one doesn't depend on the commentary and just goes by what the sutta says, especially a passage like this, it seems to be saying that one can go straight from the stage of a putujana, a whirling, right on the first attainment, right up to arhatship, without having to go like... <laughs> a flight of steps one by one but it's like there's one wants to get up to the second floor from the first floor instead of going up the staircase maybe one has some kind of pole like an Olympics pole jumper and one just uses that and jumps up <laughs> and springs up to the second, the second floor Okay, the next paragraphs here are abbreviated because they apply the same method. Uh, one important point I should make here, that is, in this <coughs> sutta, the Buddha takes as the minimal level for achieving this arhatship directly or non-returning, the first jhana. 
and it seems on the sutta method this seems to indicate that for reaching that third and fourth levels that jhana is essential according to the commentarial method it's possible for there to be what they call a dry visioned arhat that is one who reaches arhatship without achieving any jhana and I don't want to say that this sutta disproves that possibility since it's possible that there is such a, a class of dry visioned arhats and that the Buddha's statement here has to be interpreted as a kind of general principle but not as an inflexible law but it seems that generally for reaching the third stage since one is the, the anagami is one who's eliminated all desire or all bonds to the sensuous being so he has to have a mind which is at least capable of entering jhana even if he doesn't actually enter into it okay now the next paragraphs just repeat the same process using the second jhana third jhana and fourth jhana as a basis then in paragraph 13 we have the movement to the formless attainments the immaterial attainments and here we begin with the standard formula the complete surmounting of perception of form disappearance of perceptions of sensory impact non-attention to perceptions of difference aware that space is infinite a bhikkhu enters upon and abides in the base of infinite space but now there's an interesting little difference here whatever exists there of feeling perception formations and consciousness he sees those states as impermanent and so on as non as not self And what is missing here? What is missing? What is missing? No, no, no. Well, that what is <laughs> not what is elated, but what is actually missing from the text. Right, material form. But this is the arupa, the formless attainment and so of course the yogi still has the body the physical body but within that experience of the arupa jhana the object is not a kind of form as in the four jhanas but the object will be something like infinite space or infinite consciousness an immaterial object and so there's no form to contemplate so instead the meditator contemplates just the mental aggregates feeling perception formations and consciousness okay then we go on to the base of infinite consciousness the same formula the base of nothingness number 15 
and the whole formula is the same in the base of nothingness. And then the Buddha wraps it up at the end after explaining the procedure of insight on the base of nothingness. He concludes by saying, this is the path, the way to the abandoning of the five lower fetters. What doesn't he bring in? What is omitted here? The fourth formless attainment, the base of neither perception nor non-perception. And why is that omitted? Excuse me? No, no. But this, he's still dealing here with a human meditator. <laughs> it's too subtle. It's too subtle to contemplate with insight because in that fourth formless attainment there's some feeling, perception, mental formations and consciousness but it's just so subtle that it's almost invisible so one is not able to do the contemplation of insight on that. Okay, then after the Buddha gives this explanation, then Venerable Ananda asks a question. He says, if this is the path, the way to the abandoning of the five lower fetters, then how is it that some bhikkhus here are said to gain deliverance of mind and some are said to gain deliverance by wisdom? Actually, this is a pretty obscure question. <laughs> but there are some monks, I think, that the Buddha must have referred to and said, said that they are delivered by mind and others that they are delivered by wisdom. But when the Buddha uses those expressions, he's referring to monks who are arhats. This is not the distinction distinction where deliverance of mind means the jhanas and deliverance by wisdom means dry insight. But these are just distinctions amongst the arhants. And so it's said in the commentary that Mahamogalana was called one who is delivered by mind while Venerable Sariputta is called one who is delivered by wisdom. And the Buddha explains that the reason for this distinction is that there is a difference in their faculties. Some of the arhat meditators have reached arhatship by first giving a lot of attention to the development of samadhi. They are called liberated in mind even though they become liberated through the force of wisdom. But because they first focus upon developing high levels of 
concentration or samadhi and then cultivate wisdom on the basis of that samadhi they are called liberated by mind whereas other arahants will achieve some degree of samadhi but their main instrument for gaining deliverance is wisdom or insight and so they are called liberated by wisdom okay and that is what the Buddha the Blessed One said and the Venerable Ananda was satisfied <laughs> and what has happened to Venerable Maha Malankyaputta <laughs> Malankyaputta about whom the discourse began he's not mentioned any, <laughs> anywhere else okay so that is the end of this sutta and if there's any questions about anything that was discussed this will be the punch indriya but I think the difference is primarily between the samadindriya the faculty of concentration and the panyindriya faculty of wisdom yeah there has to be that balance and I would say that in the case of these these arhats of course there's been the balance of the faculties otherwise they couldn't achieve our hatship I guess through their past conditioning in this life and in previous existences, their mind is naturally disposed to concentration, calmness, serenity. Maybe people who have met a lot of suffering in life or have a lot of mental had a lot of mental restlessness. And so for that reason their mind is disposed to calm and they make that their emphasis. And maybe they've even been like yogis and other ascetic disciplines in previous lives. And so they have very strong vasanas or mental dispositions to concentration. And in order to reach arhatship, then they have to develop panya or wisdom. And if they just have samadhi without sufficient panya, then they can't reach the goal. But because sort of the burden of their practice or the foundation of their practice is this concentration then when they reach the goal then they become liberated in mind whereas other individuals who we might say are temperamentally 
sort of the inquirers, the investigators, the thinkers, you know, who relate to life not so much emotionally but intellectually and want the answers, they will be the type who will be attracted to what I call the philosophical and doctrinal aspects of the Dhamma. And so they will develop samadhi because they have to. <laughs> that is sort of the foundation for panya. But what really stimulates them and inspires them are these wisdom teachings. And so they will be the type who emphasize the cultivation of insight and wisdom. And when they reach the goal, then they will become panya vimuti arhat. Become a In the Buddha's time, it said that there were quite a large number of individuals who achieved sotapati by listening to the Buddha give a discourse, or listening sometimes to advanced monks, nuns give discourse. But we shouldn't understand that these people were able, just by understanding the discourse, just through pure intellectual reflection, to, <laughs> to achieve this attainment. These would be individuals who, I would say, first had matured their faculties uh, persistently over previous existences and so the faculties were very very ripe and um, they might have been seeking sort of the solution to the end of dukkha <coughs> even during their life but maybe not some were just like businessmen like Anatta Pindi <laughs> but still they had naturally high respect for spiritual teachings and maybe as life was very simple then they were relatively well settled in mind and also don't forget that <laughs> they had come into contact with a Samasambuddha or with other monks, nuns during the dispensation of a Samasambuddha so that all the conditions will be very mature very, very favorable to their attainment and so now there might be some people who say Nowadays, one doesn't have to practice meditation, shouldn't practice meditation, just read books <laughs> or go listen to sermons <laughs> and just observe the five precepts and then you can achieve sotapati. Maybe, <laughs> I don't want to say that they're completely wrong, <laughs> maybe there will be somebody who is very, very mature who just got left over from the time of the Buddha <laughs> and somehow has naturally very ripe faculties and maybe that person can get stream read Sotapati by listening to a discourse. But I'd say it would be extremely very, very rare and unusual. And I'd say that I mean if if one wants to <laughs> to really improve one's chances of reaching Sotapati. <laughs> Don't just go to sermons, but really practice meditation quite diligently.
But as for the question whether one has to reach jhana, my opinion is that to reach sotapati, jhana is not necessary. That the whole question of jhana really arises at the point of going from the second stage, from once-returner to the stage of non-returner. And even then, as I said earlier, I don't want to rule out the possibility and say that because the sutta, the Buddha begins with the first jhana, therefore the commentaries are wrong when they say that there can be arhat without any jhana. Since I think we should respect the commentarial tradition, but I'd say that if one develops the jhana, then one has a stronger foundation of samadhi for reaching the stage of non-return. During a Dhamma discussion in England, an Englishman who had grounded in the Dhamma, he asked me a question. The question was, uh, he had seen the words uh, Moha and Avijaya interchangeable. Yeah. So he asked me and how I understood it. I said, this is how I understand it and I'd like to comment on it. It seems to me that uh, Moha, they appear to be the inability to see through the the question. I think some people in the back, because the voice is coming this way, so I'll repeat. Okay, he is asking whether there are the two terms that we have in the Buddhist text, moha or delusion, and avijja, ignorance. And he's asking whether the terms should be taken as synonymous, and in his view, moha will be the non-seeing of the five aggregates, or, seeing, or equivalent to Sakaya Ditti and the vijja will be the non-seeing of Paticca Samuppada. Actually, first, Sakaya Ditti is not identical with Moha. Sakaya Ditti is a form of Ditti, the, the mental factor Ditti, and Moha is a separate mental factor. So the two are related in that Moha is the root of Sakaya Ditti, or Moha is the root of Ditti. But now moha, at, in the Abhidhamic way of explanation, moha and abhijja are identical. They are both, they're just different terms for the same mental factor, which is the mental factor of moha or delusion. In the suttas, they are used in a few places almost synonymously. And in fact, there's one, I can think of at least one passage where they're interchanged, or where they're set out together. This is in the Datu Vibhanga Sutta, Machimanikaya 140, towards the end, if you like it. 
No, that well, it's, it's in the Sutta Bitaka, but that passage is a little Abhidhamic in flavor. Yeah, but now in the suttas, moha is usually used in the formulation of the three unwholesome roots. That is, it's usually used together with greed, aversion, and delusion, or moha, uh, loba dosa moha, or raga dosa moha. And avijja is usually used in reference to the Four Noble Truths, not knowing the Four Noble Truths. But also I th- can think of passages where the Buddha uses, explains Abhijja as not seeing the five aggregates, not seeing their arising, not seeing their passing away. And so I think Abhijja also will refer to not seeing the five aggregates, not seeing the six sense bases. But I would say that Moha has a sort of heavier connotation than Abhijja so that yeah, Moa is the name of the Chaitasika Moa has somewhat like heavier connotations than Abhijja so in Sutta language I would hesitate to say that a stream enterer has Moha though in Abhidhamic from an Abhidhamma viewpoint, you would say he does, since he hasn't eliminated that Chaitasika. But the even an Anagami we say still has Avijja. It's a vestige, but he still has it. You know. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.